We've been looking at Isaiah because when we were in Romans chapters 9 through 11 in January and February, we noticed Paul quoting Isaiah quite a lot. And so we're taking a couple of months before returning to Romans to look at the gospel according to this prophet, Isaiah, who lived about 800 years uh, before the time of Jesus. Now, you know that Isaiah preached. We've talked about his preaching. But what you've got before you here in this text, we've turned to this morning, Isaiah 42. It's called a song. It's one of four servant songs they're called. The scholarship of Isaiah gives us four servant songs. The first one is here in Isaiah 42, where Matthew read for us. The second one is in Isaiah 49. There's a third one in Isaiah 50. And then the fourth and final servant song, we're actually going to look at two weeks from today on Easter Sunday morning. That's a little bit of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, where the glory of all glories, the resurrection of this servant, is actually anticipated in Isaiah 53. Servant songs. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then 53. We usually have a song playing in our mind or heart any given time. Uh, mine this week has been George Strait, as you would uh, gather from looking at me. Uh, George Strait's Troubadour. I heard it again recently. It was released about a, a decade ago. I loved it when it first came out and was just reacquainted with it this week. And as it turns out, George Strait's Troubadour is a good song to have playing in you as you're working with Isaiah 42, because in that song, a, a troubadour is, is one who writes and sings songs or narrates songs. George Strait reflects on his life. It's, it's, a, it's an autobiographical song in a way. And he says, I was a young troubadour when I rode in on a song, and I'll be an old troubadour when I'm gone. There's nothing profound there. He has very profound lyrics and other, uh, like Check Yes or No and some other songs of his are very profound. Uh, but he's saying, uh, songs have always been in me. It's how I became known to the world as uh, a songwriter and a, a presenter of songs, and it's how I'll be remembered when I'm someday gone from this world. These servant songs in Isaiah, Jesus, you can think of Jesus, and we've had the Hosanna presentation this morning. We're, we're thinking of Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem in this season. We know what's going to happen there to him, but you can think of these servant songs as the songs that Jesus wrote in on 800 years after Isaiah presented them. And if we had to choose just one word to characterize Jesus, is there a better word than servant? It was his word choice for himself, Luke 22, which is a communion text. I am among you as one who serves. He came into the world as a servant. The, prophet, the prophets previewed this, and the apostles pointed back at it over and over again. Let me just read you, listen to Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, here is the phrase, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, not just uh, uh, being uh, incarnate as, as a man, but a man who is a servant, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These words in Philippians 2 that I just read you also fittingly a servant song. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 10 is, a, is maybe one of the earliest, if not the earliest, uh, Christian hymn that we have on record. It says that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, not a tyrant, using people, not a manipulator or an exploiter, though he was God in flesh. He could do with us whatever he wanted to. But Isaiah 42 verse 2 says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, he wouldn't crow about himself. He wouldn't, he wouldn't bark at people for attention, nor would he bite. Verse 3, Isaiah 42 verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, which verse 1 says, into verse 1 now, this is what he was chosen by God to do. I've put my spirit upon him, second part of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Four servant songs Isaiah gives us on which Jesus rode in, behold my servant, verse 1, whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. Four tracks in Isaiah that anticipate Jesus as the one God would be at work in and through like no other. Someone who would link the temporal, what we know and experience, what's tangible to us, with the eternal. We just confessed it in the Nicene Creed that we affirm the things that are seen and the things that are unseen. He's called a servant, but he's superlative. He's unique. He's like no other servant has ever been. The servant in these four Isaiah songs is the object of divine delight. He's full of the Spirit of God, and he does the will of God flawlessly, which no one could say about Israel. When we were in uh, Israel last year, our uh, tour guide, not a, a, a believer, very friendly to believers, uh, spends a lot of time with Christians, but not yet himself a follower of Jesus as his Messiah. And the question was posed to him by our group, what do you, how do you understand the servant songs of Isaiah? And he said, well, it's Israel. Israel is the servant. But when you look at who the servant is and what he does, neither Israel nor Judah fit the profile because uh, this servant is flawless in his superlatives. Jesus does fit that profile. This Hebrew word for servant, if you'll permit me just a moment of, of grammar, I mean, you probably already know this. The Hebrew word for servant can translate into English as either servant or slave, depending on the context. The same is true of the Greek New Testament word for servant. It's context dependent. If servitude is forced, then you're a slave. But if the servitude is chosen, who does that? I mean, there's something remarkably different about choosing to be a servant. No one would choose to be a slave. No one wants to be a slave. But why would anyone choose to be a servant, especially if you're God in person? Well, it's very intentional. In choosing the servant identity, Jesus forever changed the word association. 
In, in choosing to be a servant, he identifies with the lowly and the out of the way and the subjugated and the trampled upon. Now, for us, speaking in our particular cultural context here, the culture of our church, where a lot of us are from, what we know of life, how we live life, to talk about Jesus as the servant for us isn't as huge as it is for many others in the world who live feeling dominated, who live under the control of people or circumstances they can't seem to be free of. They are subjected to a kind of servitude or to being uh, made to feel servile to others, uh, subjugated to factors and forces that diminish them rather than promote their flourishing. See, a lot of us, myself included, we were born on third base, as it were. We only read about people in low positions or watch documentaries, maybe, to get some appreciation of a life that we don't personally live. Maybe you've read the bestseller Made by Stephanie Land, a memoir of barely getting by doing house cleaning work, trying to support a child, and in one scene from that time in her life, she uses food stamps in a grocery store. A man behind her in line notices her paying with the stamps and condescendingly and loudly says, you're welcome, as she leaves the store. Verse 2 tells us Jesus would never do that to someone. Humiliation is not his tactic. Humiliation never serves his purposes. But that Jesus dignifies serving, elevates it as one who chose it, so that better outcomes would result by way of his choosing to be a servant. Better outcomes result. If we're honest, most of us realize we're some degrees removed from feeling the antagonism that almost naturally gets beamed out at those in lower stations. But Isaiah 42 previews better outcomes made available to people in whatever condition of life, better outcomes by the servitude of God. In this chapter, the better outcomes are particularly in justice and in glory. And that's going to be the two angles that we will take, justice and glory. Jesus' coming results in better outcomes in justice and in glory. Let's take these one at a time. Justice and glory, the better outcomes Jesus brought in justice and glory when he wrote in on this song. Not all at once, and some of what's in this song is awaiting a future fulfillment. Remember, in prophecy, you get a near and a far dynamic. And so there's some things that happened near the time Jesus lived. There's other things that are far, the time of Jesus returning. But first, let's talk about justice, the better outcome Jesus brought in justice. I want you to notice how often justice is the concern of this song. Look, verse 1, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth. He will not grow faint or be discouraged, all of verse 4, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Even the imagery down in verse 7, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. If you're ever subjected to injustice, you languish in that. Biblically considered, 
To be treated unjustly is to be taken advantage of, and you really have no recourse to do anything about it. So, for instance, the poor are the most vulnerable to exploitation. They don't have the resources and the networks and the connections and the, the, the heritage to, of power to draw upon to, to, to make things better for themselves. An injustice is that which robs you of flourishing or denies you the opportunity to flourish in order to keep you in a state of languishing. Now, the second part of that sentence is huge, so let me repeat it. An injustice is that which not only robs you of flourishing, an injustice denies you the opportunity to flourish in order to keep you in a state of languish. It's not just that some win and some lose. There's no news flash there. We expect that in a fallen world. It's that some win by working things so that others will lose. That's injustice. That's what's unjust. It often smells like entitlement. And so verse 3, looking at Isaiah 42, verse 3 is music to anyone who's been preyed upon, exploited, defrauded. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I've been saying we're a little removed from this. Most of us, a personal example my son gave me permission to use this. He got in legal trouble a couple years ago in Germantown. And let me say, uh, on behalf of my son, it cannot be easy, even when you're gracious about it, as he has been, to have your preacher father process with about a thousand people hard things that have involved you. Uh, my kids have never wanted to be even mentioned in sermons. I don't, they don't even want me to say hello to them from the pulpit. <laughs> but Caleb, in particular, has been very gracious. I want you to know that. And he has shown a lot of courage. When he got in trouble for things that he's left behind him now, and son, if you're listening, if anybody tries to hang those things that are behind you over you, it says more about them than it does you. I remember his lawyer telling him, you know, the judge is going to look at you, Germantown court, and he's going to see a future Germantown taxpayer. And what he was saying is, what he meant by that is you're about to get the best case scenario of a worst experience in life. You're going to get off. Because of who you are and where you come from and the way things work, you're going to beat this. If you do your part, you'll get through this. Just do your part. And that was confirmed when I went down to the bail bondsman across the street from 201 Poplar, because there are no bail bondsmen in Germantown, by the way. I know this firsthand experience. And I'm down there doing what I had to do, and the lady in the office expressed amazement that the Germantown jail released immediately upon posting bond. She thought that was incredible. And the reason she went on to tell me is because the problems they were having across the street, some defendants housed at 201 Poplar had posted bond days before and were still inside. That's not right. Here I'd been driving down there thinking, this is the worst. 
But I know now how isolated our worst is from worse still. We were in the vicinity of worst, but still on the outskirts. When you say this servant, when Isaiah says this servant would bring forth justice to the nations, notice that. That means Jesus would personally enter conditions many in this world find themselves in when it comes to justice. And that is that justice is delayed for them or it is denied to them. Again, injustice is that which not only robs you of flourishing, it denies you the opportunity to flourish in order for you to stay in your languishing. This is the tilt and the rot in the world. Jesus would not isolate from that. He would plunge into it fully as a person, God in flesh. I mean, think about it. Even, even Jesus' own trial. Do you realize here in this Easter season when we'll think about his, his trial, do you realize the two greatest justice systems in antiquity were the Roman and the Jewish? That if you were looking for justice, you had no better people to look for it from than the way the Romans had aligned their courts and, and the way that the Jewish adjudication was supposed to happen, the two greatest justice systems in antiquity on which the American system is largely based, those great justice systems equally and miserably failed the Son of God. They condemned Him to an unspeakable death when there was no fault. Everybody knew the witnesses were false. It was complete and utter kangaroo court. Justice, we've got the word repeated here in Isaiah 42. I showed you the verses. Justice as a biblical matter, when you're looking at justice biblically, and, and today there's, unfortunately, this has become another controversial issue that we want to take sides on. When you look at justice biblically, it is both temporal and eternal. You have to keep both together. The point of, of this song is that this servant does that. He connects, links the temporal, the, the daily, the present, here and now, and the eternal concern for justice in a way that no one else did or could. We have to have a just society temporally, and God cares for this. In fact, we'll come, we'll come back to this in Romans 13 when we're there this summer. We have to have a just society because no one should want to see anyone languish. Christians, most of all, shouldn't want to see that. And this is why Christians have throughout our history to the present, the world over, advocated for those in the lowest places, those who need fair wages and good living conditions, those who need dignity and protection and their full humanity recognized and valued, and so on and so on. My father, who's now with the Lord, when he worked for the Gap, Banana Republic, uh, through the 90s on to the early 2000s, one of his tasks was to go into places, particularly in the Middle East, and make sure that, that those, uh, those who were running businesses, manufacturing businesses, were treating their employees well. And my dad would go in and we'd find conditions that, that as a Christian man, were, he knew not just, and he would raise this with those in charge and say, if you do this, we won't do business with you. And he was effective in getting some things changed for people, even through business. 
Now, I'm not saying there aren't things Christians also need to repent of, ways we've been negligent and means we've withheld from those subject to unjust exploitation of all kinds. But Christians have biblical mandate to care about temporal justice. We have to. You don't have an option. You have to care about this as a follower of Christ. And yet justice, biblically considered, is also an eternal matter. It's both. It's not one side or the other. The problems that we get into with this is that people, Christians are always going to one side or the other. We're just so reactive all the time, we're not reflective. It's both sin in the world, the reason for injustice, injustice. Sin in the world requires a just response from God. What's he going to do about it? Remember Romans 3? How can God be just and justify the sinful? How can he be just, that is, rightly punish sin, but also justify the sinful? That's a justice question. When verse 4 here, Isaiah 42 verse 4, when it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is signaling that the one who serves also reigns. How is that possible? The apostle Peter says in his letter, the prophet searched with the most intense care on on these prophecies they were giving. When they did get a view of the future, it was of a servant who would suffer to death, but he would also reign gloriously. And you'd be puzzled about that too, as I would be. How in the world can that house in one person? And in the coming of Christ, we now know. Jesus sacrificed himself for us in order to be just, to take the penalty of sin, to to meet the demand of justice, but also to be justifier. It's the ultimate act of service. And crucifixion did not end him. The worst we could do to him didn't discourage him. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. He stayed true, and he accomplished everything he set out to do at his first coming. For the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he will accomplish everything he sets out to do again at his second coming. For now we wait. We wait for the just reign of God. Spiritually, it takes place over his church at present, but there's going to be a physical earthly reign, if we're reading the prophecies right. We're waiting for that, and waiting is something you endure. It's never fun. Everyone is waiting for his return, whether they know it or not. Remember creation groaning, Romans chapter 8? Creation is groaning. The world is languishing under the weight of so much that's unjust. It feels like things are going to break apart. These coastlands, verse 4, the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands represent the world in its entirety. It's just another way of saying everywhere is affected by this. The world is tired of itself, frustrated in its, the daily grind of its fallen identity and reality. And yet, what's also happening, and it isn't just happening behind the scenes. This is the major plot line of the story. God is reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5 teaches that. Life by life, the world over. What's eternal life? It's true relationship with the only true God. 
Eternal life as such starts not at the second coming of Jesus, not when you die. It started when God did justly, justly for you and I at the cross. And even if you, if you look at the elective purposes of God, it started before then. When he made it possible for your sin and mine, in justice, he made it possible for us to be justified before him, for your sin and mine to, to never count against us again. How come? What through the superlative life of the servant God chose and delights in? That's eternal life. True relationship. We're going to see it two weeks from now on Easter Sunday morning when we're in Isaiah 53. We'll see these words. He will see his life and prolong his days. The death and separation from God that we should get justly. Jesus got in our place. But it didn't keep him down. It lifted him to an exalted place. The servant is glorified. The song presents it. And he makes the glory of God accessible to the likes of you and me. This is the second thing I wanted us to see today. The better outcomes in glory. Just very briefly. Look at verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Later on, if you want to go a couple of chapters over to Isaiah 44 and read about carved idols, Isaiah makes a mockery of the whole enterprise of, of cutting a tree down in the stump era that Isaiah is preaching in and using some of the sticks of wood to warm yourself and fashioning out of one of the sticks of wood a little idol and putting it on your mantle and saying, oh, save me, you are my God. He's mocking it, but with dead on seriousness because it's not funny when a human being debases themselves that way to, to credit an inanimate object that's, that's the, the figment of their own making with their ultimate. What happens when the servant comes? See, verse 8 says, I'm the Lord, my name, my glory, I give to no other. But what happens when the servant comes? The glory is now shared. See that line up in verse 6? If you're looking at verse 6, it's basically four lines. Look at line C. I will give you, speaking of the servant, as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a covenant for the people. That's wonderfully put. What Isaiah could only see and not really make all that much sense of, Jesus brings us up close to. The shared glory of God now. How come? The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Isn't that what he says? Jesus? The goal of our salvation is what? To be glorified by God. The difference the gospel makes between the old and new covenants is that Jesus himself is our new covenant. The basis, the provision. In his obedience, we're blessed. The glory of God becomes approachable, becomes accessible in the glory of Jesus. I don't think I can emphasize this enough to you. Never emphasize the transcendence of God, his high holy otherness from us, at the expense of his eminence, his near dearness, touch of love to us. I understand the desire to lift high the name of of God, the name of all names, and preach a glorious big God gospel. But there is a way of going big that can practically deny what the incarnation is about. 
I've heard some quote verse 8 through the years as sort of this zero-sum warning against thinking ourselves too friendly with God. You better not think yourself too friendly with God. My glory I share with no other. You ever been scolded like that? Can I liberate you from that? That you don't have to fear being too friendly with God. What you need to fear is being too friendly with the idols of your heart. That's what the passage is saying. There is, it's not possible to be too friendly with God if you're in relationship with him through Christ. Oh, you can be casual and you can be flippant. But God, I think, is capable of showing you that. But when somebody expresses love for God and somebody slaps verse 8 on them, come on, what are we doing to each other? The purpose of the new covenant poured out for us in his blood, which we're about to partake in these elements, the purpose of that is to get in on his glory. At the wedding feast of Cana, when Jesus transfers the, or, or translates the, the water into wine, Baptist, plug your ears. I'm just kidding. I was a Baptist. I can say that. It was real alcohol, okay? Because the guy says at the end, you've saved the best wine of the last till everybody gets drunk, you know, and then they bring the cheap stuff out, and you brought the good stuff out at the, you know, at the end. Why did you do that? What does John say? He showed his glory. And how did he show his glory? The estimate is that the equivalent of what was in those um, jugs was about 750 bottles of your finest wine. Who, who does that? Not only who does, who changes water to wine out of washing pots, but who does it in such a way that you've got 750 bottles left over? Somebody who's generous with his glory. That's who. And that's our God. What does God mean when he says, verse 8, look at the whole verse. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. When you quote verse 8 as a zero-sum warning, it's thinking yourself too friendly with God. I've got a friend who calls that doing touchdown dances on the 50-yard line. And what he means by that is that when we only emphasize a high holy attribute of God and think we're defending God's honor by so doing, we may only be succeeding in alienating people from whom around whom God wants to draw near. We're not giving the whole picture. The problem for us, I say again, is not that we get too friendly with God, but that we're so friendly with the idols of our hearts, which is exactly what motivates injustice. Injustice motivates greedy exploitation and thinking of ourselves first and self-glorification and all the rest of it. Our idols are nothing like the God who delights in his servant, because our idols are always the projections of our best self. And, and next to Jesus, our best self is full of flaws. The servant would make the way for God to do what he intended from the beginning to do. From the beginning, he intended to pour out his glory on his image bearers, and he does that through Jesus. What distinguishes, when you look at what distinguishes the true God from every competitor, all the idols, it's, it's precisely because the true God is generous with his glory. That's what you and I have been brought in on by grace. Grace is what leads us to glory. The better outcome in glory as a result of this servant's work is that glory is now accessible to you and me. We get to go behind the curtain. We get to lift the veil. Or better, he lifts it on us as we are pictured as the bride. 
an unfaithful bride who, who yet is adored by her husband. That's the church and her Savior. Jesus is generous with his grace. I don't think there's a better thought to go into communion with than that thought, that Jesus is generous with his grace.